we got into a really tricky situation, which is, you know, we were out fundraising, things were going really, really well. Brexit happened whilst we were doing our fundraise. I'll never forget, because I was at Glastonbury when the vote came in, you know, massive bum out. Worst place ever to be for something like Brexit, because every single person at Glastonbury was Remain. But yeah, I mean, that Monday morning, every single investor that we were speaking to pulled out and we ended up running out of money and the business essentially imploded. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media, our new name. I'm Dan Murray-Serta and normally at this point I say something like this is the podcast where you can learn from top entrepreneurs but I'm going to let you be the judge of that today because it isn't a normal episode. I'm the one in the entrepreneur hot seat and I'm being grilled by Will, our head of podcasts, about my story. Here he is. Hello everyone. This is the first episode in what's hopefully a semi-regular series where I sit down with Dan about once a quarter to ask him the tough questions. There's a few reasons we're doing this. One, if you're a regular listener of the show, you hopefully at least quite like Dan. So this is a chance for you to get to know him better, maybe even like him a bit more. The other thing is Dan is building his startup height in public, which means he's transparent about how it's going, the good, the bad and the ugly. So we thought it was an opportunity on this podcast to show you what it's really like being a startup founder. Dan is quite different from the other guests we have on the show who are generally running companies worth a billion or more. It sounds ludicrous when you say it like that, but Dan is at a much earlier stage. It's far more likely that you'll experience that stage as a founder than what it's like to run a unicorn. And a lot of our listeners have asked us to interview more early stage founders anyway. So here we are. Part of the idea is that I'll ask Dan what he wants to achieve in the next three months with Heights. And then in three months, I'll ask him if he did it. If not, why not? We want to show what it's really like in the startup hot seat. And we want your help with this. What questions do you want me to ask Dan? Tell us on social or email us on hello at secretleaders.com. But we're taking this in stages and this is episode one. So before we get into Heights, we wanted to find out a bit more about Dan, the man, the myth, the legend. This episode is focused on his early professional years, right out the credit crunch, which incidentally, one of my uni friends thought was a brand of cereal. Founders are famously bad employees, so I wanted to know if that was the case with Dan. What was his first job? What was his first boss like? My first boss after university, I couldn't get a job. Um, I went to work in a pub for a year. That was technically my first job. Really randomly, I was um, not because I'm an idiot, it was because it was a recession. So I graduated in 2008, straight into the recession. There were no jobs whatsoever. So... Again, ego, big thing, big feature in the career. Decided I wasn't going to like just sit on my ass for uh, for a year and do nothing. So I decided to go and get a job, and I went to work in a pub. That pub, out of total random um, coincidence, actually ended up being the place where Camden Town Brewery uh, was first brewed. So we were brewing Camden Town Brewery in the basement of that pub and it was the first place it was ever sold. There was just a few pints every single week of it, etc. And obviously it's gone on to become a really big business with a massive exit of about 80 million pounds. I know the founder Jasper really well because he was my boss in that pub. He owned the pub. So like very random because I was sort of involved in the craft beer scene by sort of accident as a barman, but it was a small pub. So you were very involved in trying to understand what goes on in creating and selling this beer. Jasper was cool. He's not the bad boss. I then went and decided I wanted to try and get a more um, desk-based job because I thought that was sort of important. I went into publishing for about five, six months. It was really just media sales, wasn't much in it. And I had a boss called Lloyd. His motivation to everyone was to call them a cunt all day long, every single day. And um, before I, he was very angry. It was weird because he looked basically spitting image of Dave Chappelle. 
but like would just scream at you and call you all cunts regardless. Um, this is like 10 years ago, right? So no like care if you're male or female using the C word. And he did a really weird thing. He wouldn't let you sit down. So he wouldn't let you sit down all day, which obviously now that I love a standing desk is great for me, but it was a really weird thing to have a boss tell you like categorically in a sales environment, you're not allowed to sit down ever. Only at lunch were you allowed to sit down all day. This was pretty brutal. And I just generally thought it was terrible management. He was a horrible person, but he did end up getting results. So I left because I was like, I'm not learning anything from this guy. I just think he's horrible. I then managed to find something even worse. So I went to work for a guy called Alex. Honestly, um, I, I met him working in the pub. Um, he was very uh, impressed by my sort of smooth barman chat um, in general. And he'd been trying to poach me. And I went to, went for this other job. And when I left that, I was like, I got in touch with him to say, well, should I come work for you? And he was like, yeah, you can be my apprentice. Snapshot of the year and a half I worked for him. It started with me earning 12 grand a year. 12, living in London. Moved back with my mum. I had to be at the office in London Bridge by 8 a.m. Wasn't allowed to leave till 7 p.m. And it was basically a sales apprenticeship. So his entire point was like, I'm going to teach you how to do like advertising media sales. It's going to make you more money than you've ever known, yada, yada, yada. And then it was like commission based on top. Obviously, he took most of the commission and stuff. Anyway, very long story short of my time with Alex. Lots of misdemeanors. Utterly irresponsible human being. I ended up negotiating all sorts of amazing deals whilst working with him. Most notably was with AirAsia. I managed to get an enormous deal with AirAsia worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. As soon as I did that, he decided he wanted to take it on. So he took my contact, took her out for lunch, ended up banging her because he was like, that's the only way to keep her business. I was like, pretty sure the only way to keep her business is by delivering what we said we do, but okay. Then managed to get himself invited to Malaysia, which is where they're based, they had an F1 team at the time. And so he managed to get like onto the F1 track with Tony Fernandez and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, he's a very smooth talking guy, like very smooth talking. All of this was very typical, Alex. None of it surprised me by this point. I was perfectly happy sort of just being in London, whatever. Not like jealous or any issues with this, but kind of my main concern is that he doesn't bugger up the deal. Anyway, this is completely true story, by the way. He calls me up one day from Malaysia and Dan, I'm in a bind. All right, well, what's up? And he'd been in a bind a few times before. So it was a very weird situation with Alex, but he would occasionally ask me to lend him money, which when you're earning 12K, you don't have any money. So not really possible. But he would often say, you've got to lend me 50 quid here, 100 quid there. And it would just make it really hard to get the money back. He called me from Malaysia and told me that I had to lend him 15 grand. And I was like, mate, I've literally not earned 15 grand from you since working with you. Like, how would you want me to lend you 15 grand? It was like, stop being a smart ass, blah, 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 shouting at me down the phone. Anyway, it turns out he was in prison in Malaysia and needed bail. Ended up having to get it from someone else. But like, just the concept that he would call up his employee, who he pays less than 15 grand a year from jail, don't know what he did, never found out. Ended up getting back out of jail, out of bail and back home to London and was furious with me. Like literally was like, I'm going to fire you. It was like psychologically tormenting me because I hadn't done this. And I was like, but literally, you've got this completely wrong. How could you do that? So that was one thing when I was just like, this is terrible. But the thing is, he was an unreal salesperson, like unreal. Um, so I was learning and I was growing fast. And so I was kind of like, well, I'm going to just keep sticking this one out. The day that I decided I was definitely not going to work for him anymore was he had a division that was part of a bigger ad business. We were going to do a sales pitch to Tui Travel 
And uh, he was like, right, I'm going to take out some cash so that we can take them out for lunch and, and, and do drinks. And it was very like, you know, ad industry 10 years ago kind of vibe where everyone just spends money here, there and everywhere to like basically bribe each other, which is why those laws then came in about all this stuff, which doesn't surprise me. Having been in the industry, it was a heavily bribe with gifts and alcohol type industry. So he took out a thousand pound cash and we went to Leicester Square to have this meeting I'm really excited to have like a really fun day out. It's lunchtime. We're going to take them out and give drinks. Maybe it will be dinner too. There'll be a really big deal at the end of it. It'll be great. We turned up at the at, at Leicester Square. He takes me into the casino and is like, um, wait here a minute. I stayed there, goes to the toilet, comes out, literally powder on his nose, hyped up so much, so excited, goes to the first table we can find, red or black, thousand pounds on red, it's black, starts screaming at everyone and then heads off to the meeting. Imagine his frame of mind during this meeting. He ballsed up the entire meeting. It was horrific. And we finished that meeting. It's like, by this point, 1.30, he spent a thousand pounds in about one minute got coked up before a meeting. All of this stuff I confronted me and I confronted him about it and he went absolutely mad at me, said it was false accusations, etc. Then proceeded to ask me if he could borrow 50 quid, obviously to go and see another dealer. It was just so ridiculous. So after that, I basically confronted him and told him I didn't want to work with him anymore, etc., etc. And he got really violent. So really defensive, really violent. And the downstream of this story is he ended up threatening to kill my parents. Yep. Um, so that extreme, and I end up having to get a restraining order from him. An official police restraining order from him because he ended up harassing me. And he is so, I don't know what the right word is, twisted and basically stupid that he has the longest list of threats of things that he would do to me and everything else if I spoke out or I didn't think. They're all on text. He texted all of them. So I have them all in writing from him, all of them. They weren't verbal, they were all threats over tech. So it's just like the biggest own goal. So I learned a lot in this experience, but um, I also learned a lot about how not to lead, how not to behave, you know, the kind of people that I did want to work with, the people that I didn't. And I guess my early foray into business was kind of like, wow, people are sharks. People are really tough. They're really horrible to each other. What the hell is going on? And so I made it my mission right after that, my next job, which was in advertising as well, to work with kind people, people that cared. I didn't care about like the opportunities as much. I cared that people were just nice and I would actually get a chance to spend some time with nice people. So I had a very interesting start to my career. That is extraordinary, Dan. He sounds like, he sounds like a caricature. He would genuinely tell me all the time that um, his mates, and then he would name drop so many people in the House of Lords and the chief met police officer and all this stuff. And I'm like, it's literally, how, what are you talking about? It's just so absurd. Well, look, this is hopefully going to be the start of a regular series so we can have like a, a per episode anecdote from this fella. He sounds extraordinary. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So what, when did you realize you wanted to start a company? Well, I didn't really. So my dad was, uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. So he ran the same business from the age of 18 to 67 when he passed away. We had many trials and tribulations. He had very poor health from running his company, massive stress, massive anxiety, heart attacks. I mean, his health was horrific because of the company stress. Um, And he was in fashion manufacturing, which is a particularly bad space for bad actors and for really just unbalanced relationships between buyers and sellers. So he would put forward a lot of money into certain deals and then they'd get rugged after the production of making all these products and that's all, all his problem every time. So the point is, I sort of grew up with this reality of a dad running a business who was, in fairness, always home on time for dinner and stuff, but out all day, on at home for dinner, but then like super mega stressed and like really unhealthy. Um, and he ended up dying from having bad health. It wasn't a very attractive path. I attributed the whole thing as I was growing up to, you know, being an entrepreneur. So I wasn't attracted to that at all. He tried to get me to go and work in the business for a few years. I refused. The only thing that I ever said yes to was I went to work in the warehouse. Um, so he had a warehouse in Tottenham and I was like, I was 13, 14 working in the warehouse in the summers. And I always thought that was good because it's like the sausage factory, right? Get to see how the sausages are made. So really good because you're working like properly, you know, with the salt of the earth, actually like making the things, doing the things. And I think this has always been something I really valued in my parents and they're bringing me up. Like I didn't turn into like a snotty nosed little shit at all. I went to do like the hard work. I wasn't allowed, you know, into the showroom to do the work. I had to go to the warehouse. So that stuff was good. But yeah, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur particularly. I was then working at this advertising company that I was mentioning. My best friend, Joel, was um, who I went to school with. He was sort of tinkering with these, um, these various entrepreneurial concepts. And he was working at PwC and he was driving everyone at PwC mad. Like he was unmanageable. They all hated him. And I hated him because like, he refused to do what they want you to do as an accountant on a, on a grad scheme type thing, right? And so he would instead go and 
try and sell PwC services to young entrepreneurs and all this kind of stuff that were just not part of his job. So they ended up having a big bust up, but he ended up being really curious by entrepreneurs, by going and booking these meetings, by going and doing it anyway. And so he started tinkering with stuff. And because I had advertising background, because I had contacts and all this stuff, he was like, well, do you want to help me on the side hustle? Do you want to help me sell some of these ad spots on these this thing that I'm doing, I'm like, yeah, that literally so possible because I've got all of these relationships. It's a couple of emails, a few calls, no problem. And it kind of started snowballing from there. I realized I was having more fun talking to Joel about the different things that we could do, the next thing we might make. You know, it's sort of like entrepreneurship's a bit of a drug and the scariest part of it always is and always has been leaving my job to do this full time. That was always the scariest part because there's no, you know, there was no safety net. I just started living away from my parents, but then I was going to go and do this. I was like earning a nice salary um, in advertising. And I was finally like feeling like a bit of an adult, like living in a flat that I was renting with my friends and stuff. But if I was going to go and do this entrepreneurship thing, I wasn't going to get a salary. So no salary investment, actually. So lots of risk and having to move back in with my parents. Like none of that stuff sounded attractive. So I always remember like the most anxiety, the biggest concern I've ever had has always been that agitation of, do I leave my cushy job and go on this on my own? And it's a very relatable fear for a lot of people. And I still remember it. I agitated on it for three, four months. Wasn't a quick decision at all. And I make this, you know, just talk to people about this stuff all the time. Like it's a very personal decision. You have to do the thing that's right for you. Like you, there isn't financial safety at all doing entrepreneurship. It's quite the opposite actually. Absolutely. And you um, mentioned something the other day, which was, a little tactic I hadn't heard of before with the director's loan, which I thought is actually a really good bit of advice for people who are about to make that leap into starting a company. So would you mind explaining that for our listeners? Yeah, I guess, you know, also speaking transparently, I guess this is the context, Will, right? We're speaking about... um, about secret leaders and how secret leaders are set up and that actually, you know, Rich and I haven't really been paid over since 2017. Like we haven't been paid more than 10 grand, um, you know, ever to do this work. But there's been lots of money in secret leaders. So it's lots of money in, lots of money out. And the sensible thing we should have done, which we didn't, was take director's loans. Um, and there's a lesson that I learned through Grabble and Heights. And so like a little bit of background on that. What I mean to say is when we started Grabble, Joel and I, that was our previous business, Joel and I took zero pounds the first year, 12K the second year, 24K the third year, and eventually 50K in the fourth year. So, you know, staggering salaries. Now, the reason you take zero pounds is because you don't have any money. So it's really simple. Like we raised 70K or something in the first year. So we needed to hire other people. We had tech costs, we had developers, we needed to pay all this kind of stuff. So the money isn't there for you. It's really simple. But we thought it was as black and white as, well, there's no money for us, so we'll live at home, we'll eat ramen noodles, like all of the stereotypes, which are actually totally true. We did all of those things. But there's actually, it turns out, there's a lot of positivity in that. I honestly, I wouldn't change the experience for the world. I think there's a lot of benefit of not earning anything and being so passionate to work every day on something. It doesn't matter whether you're getting money or not. I think it's a great framing for your desire to make something work. That being said, what we should have done is what I did at Heights. So when I started Heights, I'd learned about director's loans and what we should have done at Grabble, which is we should have said, hey, as the founders of the business, there's no money to pay us yet. However, we value our time because we're human beings at whatever, 50K a year, call it. So we are going to not get paid, but we're going to put on the balance sheet a 50K salary for each of us. So when there's money, we can get back paid that. 
And whether your back pay comes in a lump sum or it comes in like an increase in salary over a period of time all depends on your cash flow. But what you're not doing is saying, my work is so irrelevant that I never deserve to get paid. You know, there's a lot of things that you learn whilst on the entrepreneurship journey from great books. You know, I'll always remember reading one of my favorite books. It's very cliche, by the way, um, but Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And in that book, you know, he always talks about, which is a hard thing to do, and I've still never done it, but, you know, pay yourself first. You know, if your business is going out and you've got other people to pay or whatever, you always pay yourself first. The culture is like, you always pay yourself first. And there's so many different reasons he goes into that book and to why that's the most important thing that you can do, even if it feels counterintuitive. Well, I've always done the opposite. But when I first read that, I was like, oh my God, that is so impactful. And his reasons why were all perfectly logical too. So when we started Heights, we, yeah, we did the opposite, right? We decided to take director's loans and we put the money on the balance sheet. And when we could afford to pay ourselves back for it, we did. So we didn't pay ourselves anything to begin with, but we have been compensated for the time that we put in. And it's rational and sensible because businesses have costs. So saying that the business works now at this level, we have this conversation all the time, Will, as you know, like saying that we are a profitable business, you're only a profitable business if you're genuinely paying everyone that's working in the business the rate that is fair, that's agreed, etc. You're not a profitable business if you don't pay your host, you don't pay your producer because they're the founders and they're fine not getting paid. That's not a profitable business. That's just a business that's working and on the route to figuring it out. So, you know, it sort of sounds like semantics, but when you're talking about like businesses working or not, you need to take into account whether if you were to hire those roles and there'd be salaries there, would you be able to afford to sustain them? And it's usually only founders that are willing to not get paid. You're never going to find employees that are like, yeah, don't worry about it. Pay me next year. Never going to happen. So what's important is you don't go the other way which is just to say I won't get paid and I don't expect anything for it next year when there is money. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help anyone. And as I've come to learn, also just not what investors expect. And the ones that do are the ones to run away from because they are unsophisticated and totally, totally, totally got everything the wrong way around. So those kind of investors that think that you work for them are also the ones that you should 100% always run away from. I think that's a really useful tip. Certainly something I'll be doing if I'm setting up a company in the future. We're going to get to heights in a bit, but I'm sure our listeners have heard in sort of like fits and starts a bit about Grabble, or at least heard that that name. Can you tell us about Grabble? Where did it come from? What was the concept? What, what were the origins? The origins of Grabble were pretty simple. Um, Joel and I had done a couple of smaller businesses together and they had gone quite well. So we'd actually made some money without any employees and had a very full start into entrepreneurship because they made money and um, and we thought that business was easy and that we were geniuses. But it turns out it was just sort of more luck than anything else, luck and timing. So we were sitting on a lot of pot, little pot of cash. We decided to, you know, invest some of it ourselves, you know, into our homes, at mortgages, etc. We decided to invest some of it in startups. And we decided that we would spend some of that money on doing something ourselves, right? So like, what should we do? And we were sitting there genuinely so embarrassing to say, but completely true, reading TechCrunch, being like, wouldn't it be cool to do one of these like Silicon Valley type tech startup things? But we didn't know anyone in tech. We didn't have any friends or family that have friends or family rounds. You know, when people say, oh, just do a friends and family round. Like we made all of our money bootstrapping. So we didn't know anyone that would give you money for investments like this at all. So it was a bit of an alien concept to us. But anyway, long story short is we were looking at opportunities and Joel, because he's big into 
data and trends like market trends and you know what are people doing at the moment you know we saw that pinterest was really growing we saw that e-commerce was really growing and we thought there was a really interesting space of social commerce so we decided to sort of take some inspiration of uh you know what happens if asos meets pinterest and that was our original idea like asos meets pinterest you have a grab button instead of a pin button and you can use it around the internet to grab any clothes you want off any pro- um any website in the world and it will save it into your grabble collection so you would grab clothes you'd keep keep them in your collection and we'd send you a sell notification if they ever went on sale and we'd basically write a script that would basically it would just go every single day and just check if that product had gone on sale or not so it was very simple like initial execution but ended up being you know a collection of the products you were watching from other shopping sites and then tracking the price so quite good utility the problem was like the on the list of things that you don't do when you're building a, a website or a company uh, we did all of them right so we had too many features too many colors too many everything it was just a fucking frankenstein site because we had no idea what we were doing um you know we were a couple of interns us two a couple of developers that were always on freelance with us one of them was so fucking absurd i've got a million and one stories and anecdotes about one of our developers we worked with ben um who had a new excuse every single day that he wouldn't come to work or my favorite two anecdotes from Ben by the way imagine turning up to work and you know whether your site works or doesn't work is kind of de- uh, dependent on what he did the night before on a whim anyway one day he you know managed to take the site down wasn't answering his phone etc 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 that time the reason he didn't turn up to work all day is he fell asleep in the bath in the morning and the second time by the way this is like 100 times but the second time that we all just literally died laughing of these excuses he was about to leave the door because i got into a point by the way where i realized that we couldn't trust ben to like basically leave his house without being properly prodded to come to work so he actually asked for the help so i was like fine i'm going to call you at like 7:30 i'll make sure you're up we're going to have a chat and make sure you haven't fallen asleep in the fucking bath or call you again at 8 all this shit right it was, it was just such a joke but this other time that the site went down he wasn't available for the entire day to fix it he fell asleep tying up his shoelaces oh, just off. get a visual <laughs> idea of how that even makes sense so i mean i've honestly I've worked with a real collection of characters but anyway the point is the site ended up being quite a frankenstein thing and it really wasn't working and so we were running out of money and um we had a last chance hurrah and joel had the excellent idea having been on tinder a lot of just switching the entire thing over to mobile. He was like mobile's going to be bigger than web anyway. What's the point? Like really hard to get good execution on websites this was in 2013, 2014. So let's just pivot to mobile. Let's be one of the first people on mobile instead. And we worked with this Pakistani agency that we managed to find who were actually really good to help us develop this this mobile app in a, in a month. And just before we ran out of money, we planned tactically how to go viral. um on Twitter which I know sounds ridiculous but in 2014 you could sort of more or less you know practically understand the different levers that you might have to do that so we were sitting there in the Hoxton hotel in Shoreditch one night with this campaign that had planned for about 3 weeks to go viral and I don't know what to tell you other than it worked uh we launched our we launched our app grabble trended on Twitter went to number 1 went to number 1 in the app store literally became the number 1 shopping app in the UK the day after the launch stayed there for a couple of years incidentally like stayed in the top 10 but also like at the number 1 spot for like you know fighting with ASOS and Zara regularly 
But, you know, needless to say, like the investor conversations we were having the day before, like they weren't happening. And as soon as we were number one, easy. Like suddenly, you know, as you might imagine, we were turning away investors and it was a very different story. So very exciting start to the company, you know, tumultuous. Like it was a year before that launched that anything happened. Put some context on it, you know, that year we might have signed up seven or 800 customers onto our, our email. It was really hard. That night, we signed up 10,000 in a night. So into our mobile app, right? So it was massively, massively different. And then going through the motions of Gravel, we could maybe do another section another time on, on that. But the reality is that journey was very, very, very tough. Didn't know what we were doing. Lots of advice, loads of great times, um, lots of ego. So loads of being invited to speak all over the world, lots of being the number one fashion app, the number one shopping app, and everyone thinking you're great. We were in Vogue, we were in Evening Stat, you know, we're, we're everywhere. We're in the Times, we're in the Sunday Times, like double page spread, all this kind of stuff, like really, really cool stuff. But we're in Forbes a lot as well. But at the end of the day, the business itself wasn't working. So we always knew that. We always knew that the business metrics weren't, weren't working. The margin was terrible, it was really a growth game. So it was all about getting like 30,000 more users next month and 50,000 the month afterwards. And that was the game we were playing. And we were like aware that that was the game that we were playing. So there was the self-awareness there, but there was also what investors were telling you for the next round you needed. And so we were chasing those metrics instead of having a business that actually worked fundamentally. We were chasing sort of vanity metrics, but I guess the whole point was, you know, if you can figure this out, you can figure out the whole business, guys. So... We got into a really tricky situation, which is, you know, we were out fundraising, things were going really, really well. Brexit happened whilst we we're doing our fundraise. I'll never forget because I was at Glastonbury when the vote came in, you know, massive bum out, worst place ever to be for something like Brexit because every single person at Glastonbury because of the age group was Remain and then had to go to like a bum out festival in the evening and everyone was like so low. But yeah, I mean, that Monday morning, every single investor that we were speaking to pulled out and we ended up, you know, running out of money and the business essentially imploded. And that is, you know, the first lesson I learned was, it's funny, you do these like, I, I've, you know, in the background whilst doing this stuff, by the way, I've done like a, a master's in marketing. And one of the things that I always thought was so lame, by the way, I'm not a fan of things like that anymore. Having done it, I found like, you know, practical applications so much better than doing the professional qualification stuff. I just, no, but I did it. And all I can tell you is there's this sort of SWOT analysis that you do, um, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Politics is one of the things that comes up in this SWOT all the time when you're doing marketing matrix things in, in your masters. And obviously that is just so lame. Like, you know, like all of these threats, like environment, all this stuff. I was just like, honestly, I always laughed at it. I always thought that's just such a ridiculous thing to include. And then the Brexit thing happened and our entire business collapsed. Totally our fault. What did the investors say? As in, why did Brexit have that effect on Gravel? Yeah. Or on those investors' positions with Gravel? Yeah. So um, really, really simple. Pre-Brexit, everything in Britain and everything in the environment, in the funding environment, was going up, 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 up. And so people were opportunistically investing in startups that had hyper-growth that had growth metrics that were really exciting that they could take bets in. 
as soon as Brexit happened, there was then this whole, there's going to be regulation changes. There's going to be lots of changes in the environment. There's lots of things that we can't predict and we don't know how they're going to impact our LPs, our pension funds, you know, the people that give the VCs money and the angels where they get their money. There was a lot of like trepidation on we don't know what's going to happen. The uncertainty means that in uncertain times, you would definitely back a rocket ship like Grabble, which is like paling on users, demonstrating that they have great growth and really good stickiness, but like not amazing uh, profitability margins, like terrible margins. In uncertain times, you want businesses that make money. It's as simple as that. You want to back businesses that understand where their money's coming from, that they can survive outside of a funding circle, that they don't just need to survive on metrics by metrics to get to the next funding cycle those are the things you suddenly look at in uncertain times. So that sort of macroeconomic environment for the first time in my life actually came into play where I finally understood the greater forces at nature, I suppose, that are at work in the funnel of consumer to startup entrepreneur to investor to LP to big government change. Yeah, it's fascinating actually how it happens. I mean, COVID obviously recently it was quite funny when I was working at Monza, I remember we had like, um, it was like a business continuity sort of planning and we had to review this thing. We're like, what if we couldn't access the office for two weeks? And you're in the middle of like a rocket shit startup and you think, what the hell is the point in this right now? And then obviously it came to pass. It's amazing how these things, every 10 years or whatever, there's something, isn't there? Yeah, and the COVID thing's slightly different, I suppose, on the basis of... Um I think the COVID thing surprised me a lot. I mean, obviously Heights has been a 100% COVID business, but it surprised me a lot because the, um, there were two months of fear with COVID and then everyone just said, well, this actually is so uncertain globally, we have to make it work and people adapted very quickly. That's really different to something like Brexit, which is um, isolated inside a country and its relationships with other countries that don't have these problems going on at the moment. So if you're an investor, you're just less likely to invest in the country and the space where the uncertainty is if you can put your money to work elsewhere. Yeah. And do you think, so looking back, Brexit happens, investors lining up, no longer, you know, going to put the cash in so you run out of money. Do you think you would have, if that all hadn't happened, they put in the cash, do you think you would have worked out the business or do you sort of in the cold light of day look at that and think, God, we were just stuck on this rocket ship and it was actually maybe a blessing in disguise even? Blessing in disguise. I don't think we ever would have worked out how to make that business work. And in the end, I didn't like the business either. So I started it for all the wrong reasons. You know, I started it because we were like, let's do some tech crunch startup Silicon Valley type thing. It ended up being something really cool. I then ended up like really enjoying the opportunities I was getting in my life because of it. And it was meaningful to me as a founder. You know, all the secret leaders stuff that, you know, started came from the fact that I was invited to Buckingham Palace like all the time. It sounds ridiculous, but I was. I've been to Buckingham Palace like a bunch because of Grapple. And so I met... Well, let's... Sorry, I've got to... We've got to dive in there, mate. I'm sorry to interrupt. What were you doing at Buckingham Palace? I mean, just always like, you know, they would invite like the best entrepreneurs in, in the country. And so like periodically I'd be invited. That's where I met like Michael Acton Smith from Calm and Graham from Photobox and Jimmy Wales and like all of these guys. And I was like the youngest person in there by far with loads of imposter syndrome and all this stuff. But yeah, I mean, honestly, Joel and I would go to Kensington Palace or Buckingham Palace every three months, probably. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it was really exciting and it was really great. And you, but I mean, and that's the other thing, right? As in, 
It's like, what's your calling card? Like in reality, you look at the people that I got on Secret Leaders before we had any audience. You don't need to tell people what you do if you're in Buckingham Palace in a group of 50 people. If that makes sense, right? As in, everyone, everyone in the room just assumes that everyone else there is amazing. And the truth of the matter is, like, we weren't, but everyone else was. So we were the only ones who were like, on the path to making it, really, whilst everyone else had, like, already made it. So we had amazing opportunities to, like, just 10x our network and make great connections and meaningful connections and have really honest conversations with people about the journey in an outrageous setting. And so... I don't regret the journey at all. It's amazing. You know, I've got, uh, I met the queen and, you know, like, uh, you know, I've made her laugh. Got a great, great photo of me making her laugh by taking the piss out of Prince Andrew, which obviously timed very well. But, you know, all this stuff is really like, is amazing. And so no regrets, but also no chance do I think that business would have worked in the end. And there were really great businesses in America that I really, really respected that came up around the same time as us trying to make it work. And they raised 50 odd million plus and they didn't make it work either. So I don't really think it's a fact of like forcing your money down someone's throat. In the end, like the business just wasn't meaningful enough to last the fate of time. Cool. So let's talk about that period then when the investors, you find out the money's not coming. You know, it's a bad moment for any founder at the same time, actually, I was running my startup, which ultimately failed. And I remember Grapple. I remember thinking, God, how do we do what they're doing? How do we get that kind of growth? And then the money ran out for, for us as well. Can you walk us through that period and like how you handled it, how you communicated it? Basically, what, what are your, your main memories of that you know, quite dicey period? I mean, the thing is, it's quite a long story because sadly, um, we, what we should have done is pull the cord. And we didn't do that. We did death by a thousand paper cuts. So we actually pivoted the company into a mobile SaaS business because we basically said there's no money in what we're doing at the moment. We've tested the market, but we had money. We had about a million pound left in the bank account. And that's not enough to continue our growth with our metrics and all this kind of stuff. So we're like, let's wind down gravel to the point of like keeping it just barely running but let's use the fact that we built Grabble, that everyone knows who we are and that people keep coming to us for white label experiences. And let's basically build the Shopify for mobile apps. And we had a really good go at it. We reshaped the entire team. We went down from about 55 people to about 12. Really decided to, you know, we completely changed the shape of the team. It was actually mostly developers and designers. And we started to try and build out like an e-commerce platform that was based on the principles of what we'd learned about mobile. Um, we had a couple of wins in that period. You know, we were starting to create apps on our platform that also went viral. We created an app called Popcorn, which lots of people know that had millions of downloads. It was movie movie trailers app that went to like number one in the app store. And so we started to be able to demonstrate, you know, we had like very well-known titles that were sort of our thing. And so we're like, well, maybe we're a mobile studio that has a sort of tech platform. You know, we sort of went into this period of like, well, what, what are we and how do we present ourselves? We rebranded to Mobula and tried to like make it work we we hired in a really <laughs> a couple of really hot like heavy hitting chairmen one of them was a chairman of fujitsu so like literally like publicly listed giant um who absolutely loved us he was brilliant simon absolutely love him hilarious guy was an army general um who literally drove a tank down pall mall and lived in france and took a helicopter to work every day legend just like had his little helicopter drive over the over the sea 
and came to England into work every day just for lols. Very eccentric guy. So we tried to really like make it work with all the right people. But in the end, again, like the real problem there was um, a bunch of things, actually. Found a market fit. You know, we pivoted into something we just didn't know. Like, we weren't the right kind of people to be leading this team at all. Joel was actually really enjoying the challenge because he enjoys intellectual challenges. So he was quite enjoying the challenge of doing this. I was kind of just, like, hating it. I had no interest. I really didn't enjoy B2B. I wasn't interested in the space. I was kind of, like, grumpy and I wasn't enjoying it. My mental health was really bad at this period as well. All of it was just not fun. You know, the question, like, what, what do we do with, like, our team and our money? You know, like, initial answer is, you know, we fired almost everyone in the team because we are like, Grabble is no more. We've tried to make it work. It can't work. We can't get the money to make Grabble work. And the metrics are not in our favor to become profitable. So we're going to invest in an e-commerce platform and get clients, etc. And in the end, we were way, 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 way off with our estimates. Like, it took way longer to build the platform than we thought it would. We were too, too ambitious, didn't break things down properly, had all the classic problems you would as if you were an inexperienced founder trying to build a SaaS e-commerce platform, which was essentially what we were. So we actually, I think, wasted a year and a half of our lives doing that. We should have just seen the writing on the wall with Grabble, shut it down, done the hard thing, and just moved on. But we're quite stubborn and scrappy, and we refuse to. So instead, we continued. We persevered with Mobula until literally we had a meeting with a bunch of developers and our chairman. And by the way, we'd taken loads of advice from our board, and like all sorts of people would come in to give us advice, and we'd followed all of it which was a blessing because we were able to say, look, we've done all of the things everyone has told us to do and still this is where we're at. I realized we're about a year away from products still, um, being able to make money still, but only had about six months worth of money in the bank. So it got to a point where it's like, well, what are we going to do? We can either raise money, which we didn't want to do at this point, or we stop and we just return the money that we have left and just get on with it. And, you know, again, like all this stuff is just like reflection on death by a thousand paper cuts Like, this was almost all inevitable. Of course, we could maybe have made it work. And there's a lot of things here about team. There's a lot of things here about founder market fit and passion. But, you know, we didn't have the right team. We didn't have founder market fit. And we didn't have the passion of what we were building. So it was just doomed for failure. But sometimes when you're a founder, you refuse to give up. And your ego gets in the way. And instead of doing the sensible thing, you just tell yourself that you can work this out and we couldn't work it out. I think that there's so much in there that I'd, I'd love to talk about, but um, potentially we will, you know, across this series. But I think that's a very difficult decision for a founder, founders to make, whether, you know, you stick uh, or rather if, you know, you pivot or you, you know, decide that's the end of the company because there's a lot of startup culture and legends, which like, you know, that one final pivot. I mean, we were hearing from Loom the other day on this, you know, they had a week left of money and they made it worth. And, you know, now they're a unicorn. I think that's part of the law, isn't it? And Same thing with the Decium. When I was talking to Nicola on Secret Leaders, telling us about Decium, the name Decium means 10 in Latin because they were going to create 10 brands. And they created 10 brands and none of them worked. And The Ordinary was their 11th brand. And it's the number one best-selling skincare product in the whole entire world. So, you know, that's that's exactly it, right? It's like keep on going, but there's this unwritten and unspoken law that no one understands is right or is wrong, which is when do you quit and when do you stay the path? Like just, there is no answer to that question. You just got to try and figure it out. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. And that's that for the first installment of this special format. We'll be back with another one in a few months' time when we'll properly get into heights and all the stresses it brings. So please let us know if there's anything you want me to ask Dan. And please let us know what you think of this whole idea. Are you looking forward to the next one? What would make it better? Thanks for listening. And next week, it's back to more regular programming.